1: So, this is John chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born again when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. Just as Moses lifts up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Amen.
2: Now, our sermon series... Has been trying to, since we began this fall, we've been trying to deconstruct Phariseeism. We've been looking at different instances, both in the text, but actually in our own hearts, about how we might go, how we respond Pharisaically in the world. What we're gonna do now, we're transitioning slightly, where now we're trying to see how does Jesus reconstruct Pharisees. And so in our text today, verse 1, Jesus once again, is uh, talking to a Pharisee. Uh, but this time, Nicodemus has come to him, not with accusations, but with questions. If you look at verse 4, it says, how can one be born again? And then in verse 9, how can this be? Uh, one of the main core values at Redeemer Lincoln Square, if you stay here long enough, that you'll hear us say over and over again, is we value questions in those who ask them. It's sort of at the root of what we do. It's why we do question and response after every service. It's why we're trying to equip you to uh, be inquisitive, to have an inquisitive posture to your city and to the people around you. Uh, the text, though, this text has shown us that Jesus, he himself values questions in those who ask them because he's sitting here with Nicodemus and he's so patiently helping him through these questions. Uh, now, the challenge, I think, for us I think on this side of the cross 2,000 years later is for us to care. Because particularly the care about Nicodemus' question. Because the term born again happens to be one of the most used terms for Americans who call themselves born again Christians. And that term though has a lot of baggage. And it has baggage because there's a lot of individuals who use that term that um, consider themselves born again but when you try to perceive their lives. You look for evidence of that change, and a lot of times we don't see it. And we can point fingers at born-again people groups over there, but if you just sort of take that same razor and look at it into your own hearts, or inside our, our own hearts, how we conduct ourselves, how we use our time and our money, how we organize our life's ambitions, how we pri- prioritize our needs. Most people who call themselves born-again frankly, don't look any different than people who do not call themselves born again. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, well, then where's the power? Right? Where, where's the change that is supposed to be conveyed here? It's true, I think it's true, that if, if we've not been changed at all, regardless if you call yourself born again or if you identify with a term, regardless of what you think you might have experienced, the radical moment of whatever it means to be born again probably hasn't happened yet. It, the Latin word for root is the word um, radix, where we get the word radical. And um, that means if something's to really change radically, it means it has to be changed at its root. It has to be unrooted. That means a superficial change is not a real change. It has to be uprooted. Whatever the concept of born again is, it's that. That we aren't going for just a superficial change. Jesus is saying to be born again changes everything. I'm going to show you this in four ways. We're going to see here in the text a radical demand, a radical change, a radical freeness, and then radical Jesus. And yes, I tried to rhyme that. I don't know if it worked or not. But it's a radical demand, a radical change, radical freeness, and radical Jesus. Uh, Let's get into it. Look at this. Radical demand. The story starts with Nicodemus, verse 1. But you have to ask, who's Nicodemus? 1. He's a Pharisees, we're told. And again, Pharisees back then were universally loved individuals. I can't, I've tried I actually this week was trying to think about who, who is a universally loved group of people today. And I, I I there's not very many, but I think first responders right now are universally loved individuals. And that's who the Pharisees were in their time. Two, he's a scholar. You say, Well, where does it say that in the text? Well, it's in his name. Uh this is a, a Jewish individual with a Greek name. And to get a Greek name of that meant that you had a Greek education, which was only reserved for the most highly educated Hellenists. So he was a scholar. And then thirdly, he was a connected politician. He was on the Sanhedrin. He ruled. He had power. He uh, was successful. He governed others. And so, yes, you could, be, you, know, you could be a goody-goody who's a scholar, who's a connected individual, and still be sort of a jerk. But I want you to try to read between the lines here. This man had every accolade. He had every title. He had every cultural status marker that you would want at the time. And yet he comes and seeks out Jesus. And Jesus didn't have any accolades. He didn't have any uh, cultural status markers. He didn't have any title. And he comes asking for an encounter. He comes inquiring. He comes with curiosity himself. So what I think the text is actually trying to get at, he's trying to show us somebody who is generous and open-minded and kind and curious and connected and smart, a good person. This person is supposed to, for our text, be the embodiment of the, 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 the perfect human specimen. And yet Jesus looks at that individual and says, you must be born again. And so you have to ask, okay, why would he say that to him? Right? Because that and I think this is where the radical demand is. Most people in society would say, you know what? Um, maybe if you're a drug addict, maybe if you're like in a downward spiral, maybe if you you know are somebody who's really lost morally, that person needs a new experience. That person needs to be born again. But Jesus says to the most upstanding person you must be born again, which is, he's effectively saying this demand is on everybody, universally. And I think that's where it's, why it's a radical demand. See, the problem that Nicodemus had is that he didn't think he had a problem. And I think that's actually often our problem, too, that we don't think right now that maybe in this moment Jesus might be asking us, reminding us, calling us to be born again. See, I I think often we think the new birth, it's either an old concept for us, if if you've grown up in the church, or even if it's a new concept for you, you're like, ah, maybe for those people over there. So when Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, you must be born again, he's saying this isn't just for messed up people. It's for people who don't even know that they're messed up. See, Jesus is saying, if you think you're put together right now, it means you're not put together. If you think you're okay right now, it means you're not okay. Jesus is saying whether you are a Christian or not a Christian, you don't need just a supplement. You don't need just uh, some ingredients in your life to mix it up, a little bit of religiosity, a a little bit of, of morality. Whatever Jesus is calling born again, it's not religiosity or morality. Nicodemus was already really religious. Nicodemus was already really moral. So please don't hear me or or Christianity say whatever it means to be born again to get more religious and more moral. And so the question first before we move on to the next point in the radical demand is are you willing to do the introspection needed to understand what this is going to look like? Are you willing to see the things that that you have been doing, that you have been putting your time and your effort and your energies and your time and your talent toward, That that ultimately, those things won't be enough. They're they're not going to work. Because before you can accept the new birth, you have to see how being connected, being a scholar, being a good person, being loved by your culture and society, that's not enough. You first have to accept your need for the new birth before you can receive the new birth. Uh, and that's partly that's, that's realizing that something else is at the center of my life.
0: At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response or Q&R after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastors and other members of our church community. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq.redeemer.com or join us for our virtual worship service on YouTube every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Eastern. You can find our YouTube channel at lincolnsquareredeemercom slash YouTube.
2: That's radical demand. Okay, two, radical change. All right? This is a, uh, uh, you know... If the radical man's on you, the new birth is asking us to have a radical change. And Nicodemus realizes that Jesus is like insinuating this. So he asks for more help. What, is, what do you mean? What can this look like? And then, I don't know if you've re- read that the next lines in the text. Jesus starts talking about water and wind. The wind blows where it wants to blow. And he starts talking about the spirit. A lot of commentaries point out that, the, that actually these are not three different things Water, wind, spirit are actually all instances of the same thing that, that what brings a new birth around, you can't control. This is in verse eight, that if you're really born of the spirit, Jesus says, then you're changed. In other words, this is not something that you can be told how to do. I can't stand up here and give you a four-point list of like, do this and then do this and do this, and then you'll be all right. No, he's saying it has to be experienced. So all this imagery here means that you can't just work harder at it. It means you can't just try hard and be good and then live a good new spiritual principle and let's go out and into the world and now we're okay. That's not what he's saying. The new birth is when the new spiritual life is put in you by the Spirit. That that you can't just know God is real. You, you, You can't just know that he's loving, that you have to experience that. And nobody put this better than I think than Jonathan Edwards in his sermon. That a divine and spiritual, sorry, a divine and supernatural light. Um, and I, it's so good. I'm going to even I'm going to quote you from that sermon. He says this: There is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious, and having a sense of His loveliness. Right? There's a, there's a there's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of that loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. Right? There's, there's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and then having a sense of that sweetness. And this is a, this is a, a mind-blowing concept. It means this. If you were born with the, without the ability to smell, you can know that brownies are sweet, but you'll never be able to experience the smell of that sweetness. Because to be born again Is to have this new sense, not just that God loves me, but to know that he loves me. Not just that he died for me, but to care enough that he died for me. To know if you've been born again means to ask yourself this question: have you tasted his love? Have you experienced his sweetness? Have you felt his kindness? Have you had your heart comforted by his his presence? Have you had a life-altering reality of his nature press upon you? And let let me try to be very clear here. I'm not asking you to get more emotional or have more feelings. Right? Jesus is not saying just get more emotional about him. This is a sense that's deeper than emotions and feelings. It's at the, the centering core of your reality, at the centering motivation. Now, this is supposed to get into our imaginations for the reasons for life. The reasons to live, it's in that space. So if circumstances dislodge our experience of God's love, it's possible that we haven't actually experienced it. Right? If, if intellectually you know God is good, but you're still frustrated and scared and worried all the time, then it doesn't seem that we've actually experienced that goodness, at least in a transcendent sense. Until that happens, until you taste and know that the Lord is good, until you delight and marvel and wonder, and sit back, in awe, and behold. Jesus is saying that it's not the new birth. If you don't have it, then it, it, if you do have it, it changes everything. Stories that you might have heard before about Christianity or in the Bible, all of a sudden they become alive. Right? You might have intellectually understood grace is a gift from God, but a, an experience of God's grace, I think, really gets down to this. You, start, you say this, Me? That's for me? I, I, I don't understand. You're giving me that grace? Why? How come? What would lead you to do this? And out of the new birth, what happens is then the, the fruit of the Spirit. That's where love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control all comes from. That's why we can say Jesus comes to bring joy. Joy to the city. Joy to you. Joy, to the, joy in, in the new birth. But is this deep, Deeper sense in, this, in, in, your, in your sort of inner core reality that permeates everything else. So back up for a second. Right? We, we said first, you have to realize that the radical demand for the new birth is for all. But then you need an experience of that new birth, a sense on that heart, not just that God is good, but an experience of his goodness then new life comes out of you, and then comes joy, and the fruit of the Spirit, and all these other things. That's where change So radical demand turns into radical change in that way, where the Spirit, indwelling in your life, changes your relationship to everything and everyone. See, if you're born of the Spirit, all the things that we thought were important, status, money, success, comfort, space, houses, things going right in my life. These are good things. It's okay to desire those things, but you don't need those things. You don't have to have those things anymore. Why? Because our way of thinking about life and death, success and failure, identity and truth, everything changes. That's the radical change at its root. See, now we, we don't have to look to people to love us, we have this deep, radical love indwelling in our lives. Now we can say, How do I love them? I, we don't have to look to the world for validity and, and worth. You have the deep, cosmic validity and worth given to you by the love of God. And now it changes our relationships to each other, to politics, to our country, to our friends, to our church. Radical change. Now, of course, some of you might have a little voice, maybe a big voice in your head right now. And it's saying, okay, what's the catch? What's the catch? It can't, it can't be that, that. I mean, what's the catch? And I think the radical demand that leads to radical change, the catch, and what's amazing about it is that there's no catch. It's radically free. Go to verse 15. Everyone who believes in me will have eternal life you could ponder that phrase for the rest of your life and you'll never get to the depths and to the bottom of it. And John wants wants you to understand that. He says it again in a different way, the next verse. In verse 16, he says, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Just in case you didn't get it the first time, he says it again. See, this, this is probably one of the most important statements in the Bible because of its freeness, because the freeness is its uniqueness. That no other religion makes this claim. Heck, no other non-religious view out there has this claim. Everybody has a a code or a law or a a way to to ascertain who's in and who's out. The radical freeness here is anyone who believes. And what's belief? Belief is just faith. And what's faith? Faith is just trust. And what's trust? Trust is just where you put the location of your heart. And you situate it there. And so the one question to ask yourself is, will you accept this radical freeness? And I think more than not, if we're really honest with ourselves, the answer is no. I don't want it. I want to earn it. I want to show I need it. I want to show I deserve it. At some level, we don't want it free. We can't believe it's free. But that's what we see here. So last point. The only reason why he can be radically free is because Jesus. You say, okay, well, where do you see how he showed you know, the radical Jesus in this text? Well, John waits all the way until this chapter to do his first allusion to the Old Testament, which is very different than Matthew and Mark and Luke. It took, it took three chapters, and he waits until this moment to give a, an, an allusion to the Old Testament, which is in verse 14, where he says, Just as Moses was lifted up, you know, the snake in the wilderness, the son of man must be lifted up. And everybody who believes may have eternal life in him. Nicodemus was a scholar. He would have known this reference was to Numbers 21, where the Israelites were dying in the wilderness from snake bites. And God says to Moses, put on a pole a bronze snake, and everybody who looks up to it will be healed and saved. And so Nicodemus had come to Jesus. Why? He said, I know you're a rabbi. I know you're this great teacher, which means he didn't quite get it. And so Jesus says, okay, you want a teaching? I'll give you a teaching. My teaching is that I'm not a teacher. (laughs) I'm a savior. I'm the son of man who has to be lifted up on high to save you. That's the teaching. And in fact, that, that teaching is actually an example that the people who were dying in the wilderness, they didn't just need another teaching. They needed one to look. Up. They needed something to look up to to be saved. In the same way, the Son of Man has to be lifted up to save His people. This is how the Bible always works, right? The very thing killing uh, these people were snakes. Is they're healed by a bronze snake. Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. Why he gets lifted up on the cross and it brings life. Death leads to life. The way down leads up. The way to win is to lose. And when you finally realize, and this is, this is where, let me turn it back on us. When you and I are finally ready to say, I have no other way to save myself. I can't do it. I'm done with trying to be the designer of my own life. When you do that, you know what's happening there? There's a death. There's a little mini death in that, in that statement. But when you're willing to die, The curse of that death can lead to blessing when you're reborn into his love. Into a love that you never knew that you actually had. At least not to that degree. He had to die, but he was willing to die. Jesus dying went down, and because of that, he's lifted up. Above all other names. Jesus' dying with nothing leads to everything. So friends, when you embrace your weakness... When you embrace... See, the world doesn't want that. The world says, no, I want the resume. I want everything to look nice and sharp and clean. But if you admitted it, if you admitted I'm actually not a good friend, I'm not a good parent, I'm not a good leader, I'm not a good coworker, and you slam that into Christ's love for you, surprisingly, miraculously, it becomes a strength. Because all you need is nothing. All you need is to admit your need. Repentance looks like a death because you're actually owning up to what you've done. But by weakening yourself, by what it looks like weakening yourself, it actually, by opening yourself up to criticism by other people and admitting things and bringing up the past, I know it looks like a death, but when you repent, it brings new life. There's an honesty and and a refreshing transparency and a reset that can actually happen. Flip it around the other way too. Let's say somebody's done something to you. When you forgive, you know what you're doing? There's a little mini death again. You're dying to your anger. You're dying to like, I get to hold on to this and I get to use it against you. When you forgive, it brings new life out of that death. Because all things that look like deaths are really just ways into new life with him. That's the gospel. Curses turn into blessings through him. Uh, there's a story from uh, the American Civil War where a man uh, in farm clothes he was actually seen at a, in a cemetery bending down at a um, at a you know, headstone and the, uh, he was there for such a long time. Another individual came into the cemetery, wandered over there, wanted to know what he was doing, saw that it was a young person who died, and assumed that this is the grave of this man's son. So he said, "Hey, is this is this your son?" And the farmer replied, no, I actually have seven children. Most of them were pretty young. My wife's back on the farm. Um, I was actually drafted. And despite the great hardship it would cause, I was going to have to join the army. And on the morning I was to depart to go to the army, this this man, this neighbor's son of mine came, came over and offered to take my place in the war. And the observer, the observer there said, well, what are you writing? What are you doing here? And he goes, I'm, writing, I'm putting my name on his headstone saying, I'm writing, he died for me. When we acknowledge he died for me, it changes your perspective on everything else that you do. Because there is a new life that's been bought. There's a new direction. There's a new, and to the degree that we grasp what Jesus did for us, To the degree that we let it, that we grasp it, it will grasp us. The more that Jesus went into the ultimate black void of our lives, now we can go into the mini black voids that we have to deal with on a daily basis. God give me, God has given to me, so I want to love and give to others. I mean, that is the theme of our lives now. God has given to me, so I want to give to others. This is what John himself says this in a letter, right? First John 4, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And our goal now is to live this out. Um, and it can be one of the strongest testimonies in, in the world. Let me give you a couple examples of this. One, um, some people ask because I'm a minister, they say, well, how, did you, how did you become a Christian? And I, I had to tell them, I said it didn't actually happen until I was in college. I became a Christian in college, even though I grew up, with parents who were Christians, um, with a father who was a minister, and it didn't matter because I had to hear, uh, you know, I, I, had a, I, I couldn't hear it from them. I had to hear it from somebody else at college. But one thing my parents did do is they forgave and repented to each other and to us as, as, um, as uh, sons. And the truth is, if you repent as a parent, What's happening is, is the way up is actually down. Because if you, if you repent, the, the, if the new birth is everything, when you admit and you apologize to your kids as often as you can, when, when you confess where you've been wrong and you forgive when you've been hurt by them, which they do, that is the inflection point. That is the differentiation between you and Christianity and the rest of the world. Because the rest of the world doesn't, the world does not forgive and repent. Not supernaturally. And the, what happens is you can only do that. You can only forgive and repent if the shame of it has been taken away from you because you've already been forgiven. But par- I get parents all the time who say, what can I do for my kids? What, how do I show them you know, Christianity? And I say, I, I don't know if it's words, but I do know it's by how you forgive and repent. It's the best thing that you can do. Now, some of you don't have kids. And I, you know what? You can do this to your coworkers. You can do this with your friends. The way that this, there is a, the single best way for you to show the power of the new birth in your life is to release people from the hurts that they have done to you and to actually omit the hurts that you've done to them. Because nothing in this world would normally make you do that. But that power dwelling in your life frees you to be able to be radically honest, radically vulnerable, radically able to actually say what's real and we can do that because Jesus took that ultimate payment. He forgave us first and so now we can go out and forgive others. And so the million dollar question before we leave is this. Has what Jesus done for you? Has that really moved you? Has that permeated the depths of your soul? Because if you can't earn the new birth, if you can't make yourself born again, if you can't get changed by just what you've done, but it's by what he's done for you. That means the only the answer is, has the gratitude of the immensity of what he's done has it come out? Because that leaves a permanent mark. Go back to Nicodemus. What happened after this conversation? Well, if you go to John chapter 7, he actually does try to talk to the Sanhedrin on behalf of Jesus. But by John chapter 19, he's doing a job considered beneath him by burying Jesus' body. Which makes you wonder, if he was afraid to approach Jesus... By day, he came at night while he was alive. Why would he out himself now that he's died? Why would he out himself um, by burying him so everybody could see him? And the answer, I think, is that he believed. In other words, if somebody so scared that he couldn't even approach Jesus by day is changed, if he could be born again over time, how much more could our lives be changed if we give Jesus that opening in our lives. How do you do this? A couple practical steps. One, seek him in prayer. As we said earlier, when when we said, hey, pray for this city and this church, consider how to partner us. Why? Prayer is the entry point to experience. If you go to him regularly, if you go to him honestly, Hudson Taylor, who was a famous missionary to China, in his prayer journal, the, the first line he would always pray It was part of a song, a part of a poem. He said this, it it was, Oh, Jesus, make thyself to me a living, bright reality. That's how he started most of his prayers. Oh, Jesus, make thyself to me a living, bright reality. You get an experience by asking for that experience. Will it happen every time? No. But if you come to him honestly asking and expecting and seeking him, you can do that in prayer. So seek them in prayer. Two, seek them in community. I think um, Andrew brought this up earlier. If this pandemic has shown us anything, it's that we're not built to be alone, and know it. And you're not built to be just doing togetherness through media, through technology. Uh, we're not. You're in, in a, if you have a nuclear family, you're not built to be just with that nuclear family either. If you want to know how to experience God, God is community. That's what the Trinity means. And so if you want to know what it's like to experience, to actually know God, you have to be in community with others. I, I don't know how to do that quite well in the pandemic. I know it's difficult, but we can be creative. And I release you to be creative, to find out how to do that. Seek him in community. Lastly, seek him in the scriptures. I, in my, my normal quiet time this week, um, I was reading about how Jesus met the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he wanted to reveal himself to them. And I've I, I, I been hit by this. He didn't show up to them and say, oh, you want to know who I am? Behold, lasers. That's how I would, I would have done No, you know, what he, you know what he did? He wanted to show these people who he was. You know what he did? He opened the scriptures. Jesus himself went to the scriptures to show others who he was. Why would we go anywhere else? We should go into them. He didn't just talk about himself to them. He went into the scriptures and showed every part of it about how he related to the Bible. Because the Bible is just one giant love letter from the Lord to you. And when we see Jesus, you know what will happen? It's what happened to the disciples. They said, didn't our hearts burn within us as he opened the scriptures? They got an experience. They got an experience. So seek him in prayer, seek him in community, seek him in the scriptures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's difficult to stand up here and talk about a, a phrase that is overused and is in a lot of ways lost its meaning, but you gave it because you wanted to show us the radically different thing that you are bringing. Your gospel proclamation, Father, is not more morality. It's not more religiosity. It is an experience of your love for us. If we're here and we've forgotten that experience, Father, I pray we'll go into prayer, into community, into scriptures and seek it out again afresh. If we've never had that experience, I pray we would sit and first start with what are the things we are going to, what are the things we are looking to, or we're spending our time on that aren't won't work, and then we can see, Father, the depths of what you went through for us. Change our hearts and minds, Father. Move into our into us in new ways, and we will find there will be a depth of an ability to move out in powerful ways into this world. This world, Father, needs us changed. This world needs so much. But we can't, we can't sit here and just beat ourselves up. We have to be empowered by the new birth, moving in new ways in our lives. We pray these things in your name.
0: Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already, and we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.